Hello, and welcome to A Crate and Crowbar Lock-In. I'm Jamie Britton, and with me today is Marsh Davies. Hello. And we're going to be talking about, because of overwhelming public demand, two movies, one of which is 72 years old and the other one that's 80 years old. Namely, Rebecca from 1940, directed by Alfred Hitchcock, and Brighton Rock from 1948. Yeah, so... We were just sort of talking in the Crate and Crowbar uh, planning Discord channel about, um, you know, possible topics for discussion. And I was kind of suggesting that, you know, there's a slight gap in the market, maybe, for people talking about older movies. Um, And, you know, I'm not someone who is necessarily one of those dudes who can reel off, you know, if you ask me my top 10 favourite movies, I'm probably not going to you know, say much that's before 1970 or around then, you know, uh, I tend to think that modern movies are a bit more consistent, really. Um, but there's a couple of movies that uh, uh, that I, you know, just really, really adore. And Rebecca in particular was a movie from my childhood where I was just kind of, um, I, I saw it, we had it on video, I watched it, and I didn't know that black and white movies could be as good as, as it turned out to be. Um and so I just thought we could uh, have a chat about it and uh, and see what see what comes up. I'm really glad that you picked these these two movies, Jamie. I think I think I like the idea that these are sort of like a, a cinematic serving suggestion. You know, uh, they are kind of mirrors of each other in in, in other ways, and also both kind of, of of the same time, but also quite telling of that time in cinema history. Um, I can't wait to dig into it. But like, what, so why did you pick this pair of films? I guess they're interesting to me because they're both British. They both were made during the war period, <laughs> you know, 1940 mm. for one, 1948 for the other one, when, you know, the war was over, but, you know, it's still very much the mindset of the time. They both have a sort of fixation on on British culture in a funny kind of way that is both... You know they're very different, but also I don't know they have a sort of similar horror slash social commentary vibe that I just find kind of fascinating. I mean, I guess British people are always going to be obsessed with class and manners, and both mm. of these movies are are kind of about that in their own weird way. Yeah, um, and they've also got a fair bit of violence in them, one way or another. There's a cup. There's a, you know there's moments in both of these movies which are quite you know disinhibited and and brutal and you know i mean maybe it's just nostalgia but when i was a kid you know watching rebecca i mean when when the twist came in rebecca which we'll get to but when the twist came in that movie i was so shocked by it i didn't see it coming and it completely knocked me on my ass i was so surprised (laughs) by the revelation that comes you know two-thirds of the way through the movie um and I, you know, at the time, I didn't know a, an old movie could do that. You know, I thought only the usual suspects could do that hmm. or, you know, something like that. So I think there's something about the kind of Hitchcockiness of it, which is also really, you know, interesting. And similarly with Brighton Rock, it's just kind of, I watched it, I think, I can't remember when I first watched it. I had it on DVD for some reason on a horrible, grimy copy. I'm much... Um, I'm I'm much I'm very pleased that the version that you can watch now, you know, that's out and about is much nicer and much cleaner. The mm. version I had looked like it had been, you know, videoed off ITV in like 1980 or something. Um but it's also it's just an unusual movie. It's a gangster movie set in Brighton. It's got the guy from Jurassic Park in it. You know, it's kind of <laughs> 
which obviously is you know one of my favorite movies everyone's favorite movie gives you a bit of a, a bit of an in there um so yeah that's kind of I don't know why they're so linked in my head, but they are. I would never have put them together before your suggestion to do so. But having watched them back to back, there's loads of ways in which they they kind of intersect with each other. Um, But we'll get to that. I suppose we should say that both of these films are uh, available. They're both available on YouTube, actually, um, uh, at 720p. Both the... Um, the, the presentation of them isn't kind of like horribly compressed or anything, so it's uh, it's pretty watchable in both cases. Um, but we are going to spoil both of these films completely and utterly, so <laughs> uh, you may wish to watch them before coming back to this podcast. So let's start with uh, Rebecca, um, directed by Alfred Hitchcock. Um, it was his first movie made with kind of American money, made with David O. Selznick. Um, there's a documentary about the making of the movie, which I'll pop in the show notes, which is mostly, in fact, almost entirely concerned with the um, relationship between uh, Hitchcock and Selznick. Uh, Selznick was the, you know, he was making this movie at the same time he was making Gone with the Wind, which is so stressful. Uh, there's anecdotes told in that documentary about him being on amphetamines and B12 injections <laughs> and having secretaries take dictation at three in the morning and he would literally just pass out. That's how he's in his day's work would end. He would just pass out where he stood. Um, and they contrast that with Hitchcock, who would just have a stiff drink and go to bed. Um, <laughs> but it's it's kind of an interest. I mean, it's funny documentary, really, because it's all like golden age Hollywood weirdos who are always a particular breed of strange, uh, <laughs> kind of musing, you know, reverently about these guys. But um, uh, yeah, it's kind of, it, it's, it's fascinating because the film is kind of seen as this kind of meeting of, the grand producer, you know, David O. Selznick had made Gone with the Wind and he was, uh, he, he he didn't direct that movie. He had a series of directors who he, you know, bullied and drove insane throughout the course of filming. But he was very much of the old style that a producer could make a movie. And Hitchcock obviously became the sort of foundational figure for um, auteur theory. Um, and there's lots of excellent stories about him driving O. Selznick crazy by not shooting coverage, i.e. not shooting, you know, all the other stuff in a scene that you need, you know, reverse shots and wides and things like that. He only shot the stuff that he was going to put in the movie, which Mm. to this day drives, you know, my experience television producers crazy because I always, it always makes me think of like super hands from, uh, something super hands from um, Peep Show would do, where he's just like, no, just nail it on the day. You know, it's that kind of (laughs) pantsing it attitude. Uh, the fact was is that the movie did very well and was very well considered and I think was kind of Hitchcock's passport to um, to uh, Hollywood. Um, when I first saw it, I didn't really know who Hitchcock was particularly. I did the, the film didn't strike me as particularly Hitchcocky, although watching it again since it's it's pretty pretty Hitchcocky. Um, briefly, it is um, adapted from the Daphne de Maurier novel which is also excellent and which this movie is a pretty faithful adaptation of, um, uh, of the same name, which is a kind of gothic romance about a young, beautiful woman who uh, takes up with a a dashing, mysterious aristocrat with a temper and uh, goes to his beautiful house um, and learns that there was a previous uh, wife, the first Mrs. De Winter, the Rebecca of the novel, who holds a sort of all of the, the the place and the people there under a kind of spell. And it's about her kind of discovery of, of who that person was and what that means to her. Um, I think uh, 
there's this there's this kind of um there's this notion in in um, gothic romance and actually just romance in general i remember learning about this at university whereas this idea of like and you see this in like you see it in almost every mills and boone novel you see it in um uh the the uh no, like sexy books like um uh you know your, your 50 shades of gray and stuff like that and you also see it in stuff like jane austen it's this idea say a scene where a woman is carrying a big pile of books and then a man comes past her and she looks at the man and she she drops all the books everywhere and she has to scrabble around on the floor to pick up the books and she looks at the man's face and he's looking at her with what she assumes to be anger and rage and contempt for her and then as the novel kind of comes to a climax it turns out that in that moment he wasn't feeling that he was feeling he was overcome (laughs) with her beauty and it is it is this this reoccurring sort of theme that happens again and again and again in so many books um that kind of fall under the the idea of romance and i think that one thing rebecca does really really well is it kind of starts there but where it ends up is is you know, it starts in that kind of old idea that women are unaware of their own beauty and unaware of their kind of place in the world um, and then takes it somewhere kind of much creepier and much more unusual than than I think, you know, you've seen before. Uh, it is a kind of, it manages to be a gothic romance that is also a comment on gothic romances as well. Mm. Um sort of postmodern take on those things yeah it's such a film of whiplash contrast in a way because it begins with this sort of uh, light-hearted almost thrill of their romance in in monte carlo and you know the light the landscape sea sand and sun you know and then it gives away to these shadowy interiors and the starchy manners of this you know potentially haunted manner and then that ghostliness is then punctured almost entirely and the thing pivots again into being a a sort of legal thriller (laughs) and then there's a denouement which not even readers of the book would have expected it's 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 not really just one thing i think that's one of the things that makes it feel so much fresher than you might expect of a film of that era like you were saying i too have probably some fairly shameful prejudices against films of this this period and i find there's a sort of a bit of a hurdle getting over some of the sort of the mannerisms and actually getting over hitchcock's particular way of pacing shots partly as a result of his uh, refusal to shoot around dialogue because he, he never wanted to give editors or, or the studios the kind of rope to hang themselves with. He didn't want to have too much material so that they couldn't fiddle with what he wanted. As a result, you get these quite sort of truncated bursts of dialogue that feel slightly kind of juddering and jarring, presumably because there was no natural flow to the conversation that the actors were having because he was just shooting whoever was in the camera frame and then stopping them. So you have to sort of overcome those issues as somebody who finds favour with modern cinema and modern cinematic conventions. But then it's easy to do that with Rebecca because it's it's such a kind of incredibly pacey, thrilling belter of a film you know, and, uh, and that's one of the kind of weird things about Hollywood, uh, Hitchcock is that he, he's elevated as being one of these sort of uh, auteurs. But actually, that that kind of status doesn't come with any kind of, you know, sobriety or, or deep reverence necessarily. He, he, he makes very populist, very exciting and entertaining films, I think. Um, and 
uh, I don't find that Rebecca is that inaccessible as as far as movies of that era go. It's 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 quite a ride. I agree. Although I would say one of the main barriers to for for me in movies from this era was the music. <laughs> like mm. it's always like you know kind of very very samey scores um, that I just yeah. Hollywood couldn't get rid of those quickly enough, and it took them so long to work out to put like you know pop music in the movies and stuff like that, and it's just kind of. I always find that's a little bit tricky. I mean, the score in this movie is, is perfectly nice and perfectly serviceable, but it, you know, like almost every movie it is a kind of orchestral, you know, almost like mm. pastiche romantic, you know, music kind of vibe, which is, you know, whatever. Um. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't mean anything to me, which is strange. It's, it's just, it's almost intrusive. Like I, I assume that at the time, perhaps audiences had greater sensitivities for what that music was attempting to convey emotionally. I don't really know. But for me, it, it, it's just, it's, I mean, it's not, I was going to say, it's just noise. I mean, it's perfectly pleasant music. It just, it doesn't say anything in the same way that the rest of the sort of mise-en-scene tries to communicate something generally. I mean, he um, gets there, of course, doesn't he? With You know, if you think about Psycho, where the, mm. the score is, you know, he uses a sort of knife <laughs> yeah. in its own way, you know, and I think, you know, I can imagine that was something he probably, he probably, you know, looked, looked on his own films and thought, how can I actually change this up a little bit more? Because later Hitchcock movies do really interesting stuff with music, but, uh, you know, he couldn't break every rule, I guess. Um so let's just kind of pile into this movie, I guess. It, as you say, it starts off as a romantic comedy, or it starts off with its um, beautiful little prologue. Last night I dreamt I went to Mandley again. Um, one thing I, I love about both the book and uh, the movie is that the narration, which is only at the beginning and the end of the movie, it takes place in this future point, which is completely obscure. Like we mm. don't actually know where, where she is. Um, and the character is never given a name in typical Hitchcock fashion. Um, but the second Mrs. De Winter, um, played by uh, Joan Fontaine, we don't know where she's ended up. We don't know where she's remembering Mandalay from. Um, but it is some point uncertain. Um, and I always thought that was a really excellent kind of vibe to start things off with, with this kind mm. of like, you know, a sense of, you know, the and, and Hitchcock is kind of... Sh- shooting this sort of extraordinarily beautiful dreamy forest it's funny i've been playing elden ring and there's lots of dreamy forests in that um uh dreamy forest you know uh, uh, and kind of conjuring this kind of dreamlike you know vibe for this place um but then after that we get we go straight into the rom-com in morocco um uh we should spare a moment for uh, mrs van hopper oh yes <laughs> So the sec- the woman who's going to become I don't know how to refer to her the woman who's going to become the second Mrs. De Winter the the, the protagonist maybe the, just the protagonist that... it's a, I mean it's a little bit um yeah uh, what was that movie <laughs> that Christopher Nolan movie called the character protagonist Tenet he was called protagonist oh, yeah. wasn't he I was so stupid um <laughs> yes so the protagonist who's not moving in any direction in time um she is working as a companion for a crazy old rich lady. Uh, who's called Mrs. Van Hopper, who is just fantastic. Oh, um, how, would you just, like... how would you describe Mrs. Van Hopper, uh, Marsh? Oh, a high society villain, I would say. <laughs> uh, you know, like not a, not a villain as in a, a sort of world-ending menace, but just like a, a casual conversational villain. She's up there with like Lady Catherine de Bourg um, <laughs> as, uh, from Pride and Prejudice. It's just, just a terrific... The performance is excellent as well, but the character as written is just this manifestation of 
outrageous pomposity and, and grasping sycophancy when it's required, but also just sort of like oblivious to, to her cruelty, to what might be going on. Uh, I, I love it. It's it's one of those these performances that you you just relish because the character is just so utterly repulsive. <laughs> She's fantastic. Great. Yeah, really good fun. And it's funny because she kind of gives the sort of first act of the movie this, you know, something it never gets, which is a kind of comic relief. Mm. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, the protagonist uh, meets uh, Maxim de Winter. The, the, the opening of the movie after the prologue is he's standing on a cliff edge, looking down into the water. Um, and she sort of shouts at him to stop, and that's their kind of meet cute, which is him considering suicide, which is how this film begins. <laughs> um, and then they have a kind of, uh, you know, whirl- whirlwind romance together. Mm. Laurence Olivier is interesting in that he is not an actor I actually seen in that many movies. Like, I've seen him in this, I've seen him in Marathon Man, yeah, 40-odd years later, and <laughs> I can't remember much else that I've actually seen him in. To my shame. Um, I mean, which is not that confusing, I guess, because he didn't actually do that many movies, I don't think. He was still, he was mostly a, a, a theatre actor, but hmm. he's great. I think he's really good in this movie. Um, he's really, he's like genuinely scary. He's kind of handsome, but in a kind of non Clark Gable way. You know, he's got a weirdness about his features, I find. There's um, a softness to him, I think, that Clark Gable doesn't have. Like, yes. um, He's not quite the sort of as 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 though he is kind of an imperious aristocrat in this, um, and I think, you know that, um, on paper that should make the things the things he's doing and the things he's saying should feel extremely dangerous. Yeah. Um, but he, Laurence Olivier is a good piece of casting because he has that extra sort of softness, that sort of sympathy um, to him. It makes him much more kind of trustworthy instinctively. I think that sort of softens some of the things that, that would otherwise be uh, sort of like dangerous tells. And that makes that kind of allows the sort of the tension to be uh, preserved in a plausible way, because otherwise, you know, you'd be, you know, shouting at uh, Joan Fontaine, you know, get out of there, you know, no, don't, no, don't go with this strange man whose, whose wife is previous wife has died in mysterious circumstances. <laughs> um, but that, that, I mean, that is the tension that's the heart of the movie. And I think, the casting choice of Laurence Olivier is, is something that managed to sort of put a pin directly in the center of that. Yes, exactly. And so he sort of, you know, after they meet and he kind of takes a liking to her, they go on a, off on a sort of whirlwind tour of his uh, personal red flags, <laughs> I would say, <laughs> yeah. um, where he, you know, he orders her out of the car if she's not having fun. You know, he does a whole bunch of toxic stuff to her. Um, I mean... I don't know if you read that story that came out. Was it a New Yorker story? It's called Cat Person. Mm. It's a sort of chillingly accurate uh, portrayal of modern dating from a woman's perspective with all the kind of, you know, conjured very well, that kind of red flags arise and then you sort of move past them in the hope of finding love. You know, it's kind of very pertinent here, I thought. <laughs> it's just kind yeah. of, he's so horrible to her. He treats um, her like a child, but but not only does he treat her like a child, he openly values her childishness. And at one point, he even forbids her to reach the age of thirty-five. I think it is, which yep. you know should set off alarm bells for somebody who's dating a recent widower. <laughs> but uh, and but what's I wonder what your your opinion of this is? Like, I think so a lot of that chauvinism isn't in the in the novel. Uh, interestingly, a lot of that stuff is invented specifically for Hitchcock's version, and I wonder. 
watching this today, I mean, all of that stuff is deeply uncomfortable, uh, as is like the the protagonist's gushing acquiescence to it. But like, is I find that discomfort to be very interesting and like essential to one of the film's qualities. But I, is it the film attempting to present this as sinister ne- or negative, or is is that just the values of the time that it was filled? <laughs> <laughs> I I think I think there are although there are plenty of movies from this era which where casual misogyny is treated as you know uh, just basically great stuff. <laughs> mm. um, I think in this movie it's very very considered. It's funny in that documentary they talk about how um, Hitchcock's original script for the movie began with the boat going to Monte Carlo and Maxim was standing on the boat smoking a big cigar. And all the other passengers were getting really grossed out by the stink from his big cigar. <laughs> and that's kind of where he was from in, in Hitchcock's mind. He was this kind of, you know, nasty smell. <laughs> um, and I think you know, David Ossos, you know, very much got him to tone that down. But I do think, I think Hitchcock is making him such a bastard, you know, for a very good reason in that he is he's less interested in him and he's fascinated in Joan Fontaine. Mm. You know, the way the camera finds her, her sort of uh, porcelain skin um, and this kind of wide open expressive face, you know, the way Hitchcock always shot, you know, blonde ladies. Um, And she is, as you say, she is so passive. She doesn't take the reins or take command or take control of almost anything in this first half of this movie, she just allows things to happen to her. Um, uh, and yeah. But somehow she's extraordinarily winsome, I find. Like, I think she's believably naive, but she has like a depth to her puppishness that's just, just, maybe doesn't actually stop her being outright pathetic. Like, I think it would be easy to find a pathetic, I, I, I don't mean that in a sort of derogatory way, I mean that in a, you know, uh, narrative way but it's it's not really her fault like that she she is more or less a child and she's in these circumstances uh she's an orphan uh and she's reliant on others for her for her money um so i i i think i think it's okay to feel uh sympathy with her i don't think she's being set up as uh a through and through idiot (laughs) uh which which is one possible interpretation of why she would go with this man who is potentially dangerous. But that said, no. I don't think ultimately the, the, the Hitchcock, or at least the, the film, really respects her. I, I think the lens views her as a victim primarily. Uh, and she's like, we'll, we'll probably get into the differences in this adaptation from others, but or, or in fact from the text, but she's extra damseled in this ad- adaptation. Um, and she's not someone who even in the last act, really makes her own choices uh, to romance an older man or to marry him or or how she then deals with his potential murderousness. Um, no. But Joan Fontaine carries it because she, she just has uh, an immense sort of uh, natural charm to her. Yes. I mean, it's funny, isn't it? Because there's a, I, I you know, I'm, I'm reaching deep down into my own you know, constructive masculinity and wondering if the reason I don't find her terribly dislikable is because there's a horrible, you know, Jungian part of me, which, which, which like Hitchcock, considers women who are incredibly compliant and incredibly, you know, just sort of uh, blank slates is something, you know, somehow desirable. I mean, it's certainly something mm. Hitchcock came back to again and again in his 
movies. Um, what's, the, what's the line that? Uh, what's what's the line with which Maxim proposes to her? It's something like, "I'm asking you to marry me, you little fool." Yes, that's exactly what <laughs> like, it says to her. Yeah. Oh God! I mean, that's that's not a, and she she loves it. <laughs> like, yeah, she's totally no. liber- She's totally liberated by it. She gets to tell, uh, uh, you know, Mrs. Van uh, Hopper to go fuck herself, um, uh, and uh, uh, well, I mean, it's quite the other way around. Of course, Mrs. Van Hopper is a great scene where Maxim's just nipped out, and they've told him that he's gonna. They're going to marry, and she just coolly uh, breaks <laughs> uh, Joan Fantaine into pieces before she goes. I love the way she goes. You haven't been doing something you shouldn't have, you, which I just really like. Mm-hmm. Like that, that often you find with these movies as well, and you find it with Brighton Rock too. Is like sex is you know they're so terrified of sex in these movies that it's alluded to as this kind of like dark monster <laughs> that's going to come out and eat someone. You know, it's right, just kind of yeah. it's such a frightening prospect. Um, <laughs> uh, so after a, after a few uh, you know sharp words, she stalks out of the movie, and um, uh, Joan Fontaine, after this whirlwind romance, where you know becomes, uh, I mean, they get married right there and then, don't they? Um, mm. uh, and uh, he's going to take her back to Mandalay. I mean, it's funny because his red flags have been, you know, uh, we, we find out that his 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 wife uh, Rebecca drowned. Um, which means that he is taken to sort of staring into water and becoming very bleak and dark and saying, we're going home. You know, he's kind of very much that kind of vibe. Water's an interesting um, uh, symbol in this movie, actually. There's a lot of it. Um, And later on, there's a great speech uh, about how it was water that could claim uh, Rebecca. No one one else could. Um, But as we get into Act 2, when when, uh, Joan Fontaine and Maxim head to Mandalay, um, in a shower of rain, <laughs> water again, I would say almost kind of orgasmic uh, shower that's coming down here as they arrive at this mansion. Um, and I think it's important to to sort of talk about the way Mandalay itself is shot. I was mm. really amazed by the way Hitchcock does this thing where he shoots her um, with the ref- uh, the light that's gone through leaves that are outside the window and are projected onto her clothes and, and face. So yeah. she has this kind of shifting pattern on her at all points, which just makes her seem incredibly... It, it, it doesn't give it to any of the other characters. It's only ever on her. Um, and just makes her feel almost like this kind of leaf in the wind um, inside this this house. And the house itself, I was, just when I was watching it again yesterday... It's so meticulously put together and designed. You know, it's it's so mm. detailed and the model and... shots alone outside are incredible, actually. Yeah, it's it's really impressive. And I think I'd only ever watched this on video before, probably. And seeing it now on the relatively nice version that's on YouTube, just seeing how much detail there is everywhere in every little spot. You know, and this is yeah. a this is a full blown set, so it's all very, very um placed. Um and I mean, yeah, the, the way I mean, it's worth kind of dwelling on just the, the the way the film looks all together. I mean, I, I think this is one of the reasons that Hitchcock is widely admired. Would <laughs> wouldn't be surprising to say, but like every frame is absolutely stunning, and Hitchcock is not an improvisational director. Like he knows exactly what he's putting in the frame, and I think it's important to say that the frame at this time is very small, by contrast with like modern cinematic expectations. And like, it's I mean, it's it would be. 
probably reductive to say that, you know, because it's small, one has to take more care about what one puts in it. But I think it does pose really interesting challenges when it's required to do scale. Like, I know that's true of, you know, depicting Mandalay in its totality. Um, but also like in, in the, the, I think it's the first scene of the film in Monte Carlo, uh, you get some incredibly brilliantly composed shots uh, to, to frame both Maxim and the protagonist at a distance from each other on different outcrops of a high cliff face. And it's got to communicate not only their separation from each other, it's got to put them in the frame together and also give you a sense of the vertiginousness of those cliffs. And like, I, uh, I've done storyboarding in the past and it's really hard to kind of put those compositions together. And that's a, a, like a lot of the, just the shots in this film you, you know, made me pause and just realize just how uh, ingenious it is, not only just to kind of fit all the required elements in the frame, but then to say something dramatic about them at the same time. And like, it's in black and white. So, you know, that's one of the other tools that a, a cinematographer has <laughs> out the window. And, uh, but then, you know, but even though it's in black and white, the section of the film that takes place in Monte Carlo just feels just so kind of breezy and warm and full of life. And then Mandalay is this kind of grand and austere place. Um, and it, it's really noticeable that whenever there are shots of Mandalay's interiors, Part of it is, or part of the frame is always descending into shadow. I think uh, I'm, maybe that's not always true, but it feels like that. And it's like, it's, it's almost like it's impossible to see the totality of Mandalay. Something is always concealed from you, receding from you. And there's like, um, I think one of the kind of the, one of my favorite shots in this entire film is uh, almost as soon as they arrive at Mandalay, they, it's a, there's a rain shower, they go inside and surprise, all the staff have been arrayed to, to greet them in this kind of uh, slightly terrifying you know, social moment. Um, and you get this wide shot of all, all the staff, minus Mrs. Danvers, interestingly, who becomes like a sort of nemesis uh, for the protagonist in the film. Um, you get this wide shot of all the staff standing in this absolutely insanely ornamental room before this giant arch. And I guess there must be like... It, it just looks like there's there's like the Arc de Triomphe has been dropped inside a room. <laughs> and like, there's, I guess there must be like a mezzanine or something on top of the arch, but it's just ink dark up there. And uh, like, it's it's just terrifying and, and gives you this just sense of enormity and depth. And, but what the, the thing I really like about it is that Mrs. Danvers isn't in the frame. And then we get another closer shot of the, of the staff and Danvers just sweeps in from the mm. left into center frame as though just apparating from smoke <laughs> and like genuinely the, the entire room that you're watching it in gets 10 degrees colder <laughs> <laughs> like it's just an amazing combination of composition and understanding how to convey a character through the personal of that actor and their poise and their presentation it's just peerless you know that's why people like hitchcock <laughs> yeah no, um, and we should talk about Mrs. Danvers. Uh, mm. She is the housekeeper, um, and as we meet her in the in this, uh, well, I mean, she's, I mean, <laughs> I'm stopping because I'm trying to think of how to describe her. She is, you know, she was the the long time housekeeper, and she was a confidant of the first Mrs. Dewinter, Mrs. Dewinter. We find out, um, uh, and is kind of her sort of envoy <laughs> in the world of the living, I guess. Yeah, uh, um, she was. Considered at the time, you know, lots of people talked about the sort of um, in, inherent, in, uh, sorry, not inherent, but like subtle, like lesbian 
uh, like when it was the earliest cinematic depictions of lesbianism. And they talk about in that documentary that the censor noted it and said, you know, when they were reviewing that film, can we can we take a look at this? Is she too much of a lesbian? Um, Hitchcock says he didn't intend that. Um, and I'm not too sure, actually. I mean, there is that scene where she rubs her face against one of Rebecca's old furs, which I thought was, like you know, mm. some kind of imagery there. Um, well, I mean, she literally picks up a piece of lingerie and pours at it and admires its transparency. Yeah. <laughs> so, like, I mean, I don't know that it needs to be... Uh, you know, I, there's a lot of desire to sort of categorize things, uh, and that creates just misunderstandings between uh, people who have categorizations based on the mores of the 1930s and people who have categorizations based on a now slightly uh, kind of more liberal understanding and of, of the sexual spectrum. But like, yeah. I don't think it needs to be like a, a a sexual love between them. It's it's what it is is obviously an overbearing obsessive love which is definitely not maternal and it's way beyond friendship and you know you don't have to call that lesbianism if you don't want but like quite probably if not lesbian it's certainly erotic isn't it i mean and it's a film full of that (laughs) um you know rebecca has commanded this you know this amount of fixations on her from just about everyone she's ever encountered you know Mm. and uh, uh with um mrs danvers danny as a later character calls her uh, being kind of the most the most kind of infected by that and her most kind of staunch ally. Um, yeah, so we kind of get into this second act of the movie, um, which very much, I think, uh, you ever gone somewhere where you don't know the rules? <laughs> like, you mm. know when you stay over someone's house when you're a kid and you don't know, like, when you're allowed, if you're allowed to go to the toilet in the night or, <laughs> or like, you know... Right. What's going to happen, you know, uh, in the morning or something like that, or if you're at a hotel and blah, blah, blah. It very much captures the anxiety of being in a place where you don't know what the way things work. Mm. Um, And the movie spends quite a lot of time uh, watching Joan Fontaine sort of wander about this huge space, getting lost, trying to work out how she's supposed to fit in here. Uh, It's very unnerving as well in this kind of time and place where everything is sort of done for you. And as an aristocratic um you know woman or you know a, a woman who's married into aristocracy basically all you can do is you know hold parties <laughs> um something that this character doesn't really want to do at least at first so it's kind of unusual uh of her kind of finding her way through this space um and she also gets to go into rebecca's bedroom where we find this is where we see mrs danvers doing her kind of uh, showing her her underwear and showing her mm. her furs and oh you've moved her hairbrush and she puts her hairbrush exactly back in the spot where it was which is great um, that scene is uh is just uh it's a perfect realization of passive aggression right like he, mrs danvers is going through the room explaining it but with every sort of uh item she picks up she's aggrandizing rebecca through these fine objects and suggesting that these things were fine because they were fitting for somebody as perfect as Rebecca, you know, and obviously by the same token, the protagonist is essentially being dragged and diminished. But like Danvers, uh, or rather Judith Anderson, who plays uh, Mrs. Danvers, her expression is sort of like part entranced by Rebecca. And so it's almost believable that she might not recognize the distress she's causing the protagonist, but 
in the end, it's it's plausibly disguised mercilessness. <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's it's a really chilling scene of of manipulation. Yes, and very um, very, uh, it's spooky. Like it, mm. it, you know, it's like a kind of it feels like a ghost story where there's no ghost, but there is. You know, it's it's kind of mm. she's she's a very I love how present the the movie makes Rebecca in various ways. Um, and uh, you know, Mrs. Danvers is uh, is just one of the ways in which Rebecca kind of continues to sort of haunt haunt the movie. You know, the the guy who's the nice guy, who's like the accountant who looks after mm. Maxim's affairs, and she can kind of be sort of open and honest with him because he's approachable. And she asks him what Rebecca was like, and he he kind of has this like disarmed moment and tells her she was the most beautiful creature he'd ever seen. Mm. Um, and you know, and, and that's when we cut to. <laughs> I think this is the scene where Joe Fontaine's lying in bed, sort of tossing and turning and having a dream. And there's a voiceover going, you know, she was the most beautiful creature I've ever seen. She's the most beautiful creature I've ever seen. Lisa needs places. Daniel Plan. It's just, <laughs> I just couldn't. I really wanted to hear that in that section because it's exactly that scene from The Simpsons. <laughs> um, anyway, uh, yeah. So uh, I'm trying to think what else there is to cover in this kind of first part of the movie. Um, Maxim well, himself is, is he's sort of jumping in and out, coming and going, and and he 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 retains a lot of charm, which is why you kind of I don't know, in the same way that she pines for him to return when he comes back, you sort of enjoy it when he does because he sort of cuts through the bluster and he says, "Oh, don't don't listen to Mrs. Danvers, she's ridiculous, and you don't need to do that." And, but isn't uh, that worse? That's almost like uh, that's. I mean, that is gaslighting, isn't it? He he doesn't. He just completely dismisses the idea that there would be anything more sinister about Mrs. Danvers than than there is. You know, he just he's just like, oh, you don't need to listen to her. But you know what what Joan Fontaine's character is trying to say is <laughs> is that there is something kind of uh, unnerving and uh, manipulative occurring. And I, I think his presence, as reassuring as it is, also serves to compound her own sense of self-doubt in a way which is you know psychologically incredibly distressing (laughs) Uh, there's a great scene um, where we meet uh, Jack uh, Vavil who is uh, coming in through the window (laughs) Uh, this is um, as he describes himself I'm Rebecca's Rebecca's favourite cousin Um, played by George Sanders, who was the voice of Shikhan the Tiger in Jungle Book, <laughs> um, and in possession of one of the greatest voices in cinema history, yeah. often played cads like this. Um, and yes, he's he's gonna he's only really in um, two or three scenes in the movie, one here and then a couple much later on, but he's fantastic fun, I think. Uh, an excellent kind of evil um, uh, bastard. Um, there's a great bit later on where he's just like, I'm an ordinary bloke. <laughs> <laughs> Well, mm, okay. Well, I, I, th- I think we'll, get, we'll unpack this later. But is he an evil bastard? Well, no. I mean, he's made yeah. out to be as as evil as he could be, but his actual motivations are more honest than the protagonists. Ultimately, but yeah, yeah, we'll, we'll get there. Sorry, we'll get there. But he, at, for this point in the movie, he's just immense fun. Mm. Uh, I find. Um, I don't quite know why I have such a connection to George Sanders, but whenever. He's in- <laughs> Any movie ever, I'm just kind of oh, I just want to, I just want to talk to you, you weirdo. <laughs> um, uh, so yeah, we meet, we meet him, and and we kind of, 
we see uh, the protagonist's sort of attempts to fit in here and her failure to. She breaks her statue. Oh, which God. God. Oh, God. <laughs> it's, it's mortifying, isn't it? It's like breaking breaking it is one thing, but the fact she tries to hide it like a naughty child and is yeah. exposed in, in her folly top to bottom. Uh, it's, wow, that's so cringe, as Hitchcock himself would have no doubt noted. <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's very cringe and uh, totes emotion. Um, <laughs> uh, we meet, uh, you know, uh, Maxim's is it his sister and her husband, who is kind of, uh, you know, I don't. It's hard to describe her. Actually, she's sort of she's kind of urbane and witty, but also kind of like a lot of the people in this movie kind of I don't know like her brother she's got a sort of streak of nihilism in her as well it's a kind of weird mixture of keeping up appearances and also not caring about anything at all which actually mm. thinking about some of the posher people I've known is kind <laughs> of a feature isn't it it's that kind of weird mixture of self-aggrandizing and, and self-deprecation that seems to be a kind of signature weapon of, of the upper classes you know and, <laughs> um, and it's quite horrible to everyone else you know, if you've ever seen a room full of normal people and then a posh person comes in <laughs> um and starts talking about oxford and cricket it's kind of a you know it it's a very fish out of water vibe here i guess is what i'm driving mm. at and and she just can't compete at that level she's got no bants at all um and everyone Joan else Fontaine, is, you mean Joan fontaine has no bants at all though <laughs> um and you know so it's kind of she seems very very uh uh, well, as we described, she's so passive and so terrified of everyone and so eager to please. Um, and then eventually she gets to this point where she's going to sort of take things in hand. Um, uh, and she's convinced that, you know, Maxim was still in lo- is still in love with Rebecca, which she, you know, would explain his irrational outbursts of anger, which continue pretty much randomly. <laughs> mm. um, there's a boathouse that she goes in, which he's utterly horrible to her again about because he's freaked out by that yeah um, she even explicitly says oh, how am i meant to guess you know and he doesn't yeah. have an answer for that he just storms off yeah uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah and he also does he does a thing you know which is excellent toxic masculinity as well where he will he will chastise her and then he'll chastise himself and so she hasn't done anything wrong it's all him you know which mm. again is is i mean perhaps i'm being too revealing about myself but like is when you're feeling terribly depressed in life and out of control and stuff like that like inflicting the absolute worst of yourself on the people you're closest to i mean it's not acceptable it's not a good reason to do it but it's kind of i don't know there's a truth to it i guess is what i'm saying yeah um uh and 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 all the more tragic for her just trying to you know fit into the right you know fit into the right peg fit the right peg into the hole for him and just failing at every point um, and then of course she she does this uh, they're going to do this costume party um, which she has the idea for um, and this is just mortifying uh, she's going to copy a dress that's in, in one, of, one of Maxim's ancestors is seen wearing in a portrait this is suggested to her by Mrs Danvers um, I was quite amused by her drawings of, of her other costume ideas which include I think uh, like a Knight Templar and various other like D and D characters, maybe. <laughs> I don't think there's a wizard in there, but she draws a few things. Um, and then, yeah, they have the the ball, and she appears at the top of the stairs in this ridiculous puffy dress, 
and uh, and uh, Maxim is absolutely furious about this because it was a uh, it, it was uh, Rebecca had worn an identical dress at the last ball before her death. This it's is a just setup. It's a setup. It's such it's... a brute. It's a stupid setup because she's found out. You know, she's found out immediately about it. <laughs> Well, yeah, but the thing is, there's no comeuppance for Danvers, which which no. is weird. I mean, the the film does uh, a clever thing of sort of alighting uh, time and thus also consequences. Uh, so uh, things that would naturally fall out as a result of, of this uh, upsetting moment, like saying, oh, Danvers literally suggested it to me, <laughs> um, never occur. And you don't get, so you don't get that kind of cathartic moment of, of understanding and forgiveness. It just the kind of paranoia rolls on. But what's so good about this is it's sort of set up like at a moment of sort of uh, truce between uh, Danvers and the protagonist, like. I, I, I don't think I'm sure if Danvers just totally apologizes, but there's some sort of kind of um, agreement between them uh, after some kind of initial hostility that they're going to try and uh, work together um, to, for the benefit better of the house and, and uh, for, for the happiness of Maxim. And so when Danvers suggests this dress, this sorry, this dress, um, there's. I, you're sort of you're so kind of eager to escape the film's growing anxiety, like the heroine, that you're willing to believe that this might actually be true, and that you know, uh, even though you, you obviously Danvers is suspicious because literally everything about the film makes her feet seem suspicious and threatening, <laughs> you, you do think that maybe this could be like a film about the redemption of Danvers as much as it is anything about anything else, like sort of. Um, uh, like uh, uh, is it Marilla Cuthbert in Anna Green Gables, who is sort of initially kind of an austere foster mother to the protagonist and uh, absolutely terrifying and strict, but then ultimately is is redeemed by Anna Green Gables' goodness. And so, you know, I think the first time I, was, I I watched this was probably around the same time as I watched an a- adaptation of Anna Green Gables. So I was really kind of. Um, wrong-footed by the fact that Danvers absolutely fucking shanks her, you know, <laughs> and and then and but not only just uh, that betrayal, but then uh, the scene afterwards in which uh, the protagonist is in a state of absolute despair to just uh, openly and directly uh, encourage her to throw herself to her death out of a window. Uh, the way that that is presented is so purely and unabashedly evil. <laughs> it's it's genuinely shocking. Uh, I think. No, I couldn't. I couldn't believe it when I first saw that this scene. And it's it, you're you're right because it, the the you know another movie would have had the fallout from this moment to have been some kind of you know uh, you know conversation of of oh Mrs Mrs Danvers told me to wear this dress and more, you know and sort of finding out and all that sort of stuff. But actually, it leads. You're right. It leads somewhere much more interesting in that it goes into this scene, which which is this this scene of intimacy between them, horrible intimacy, the sharing of intimate details. Um, um, and yeah, just this kind of, this thing she says to her, I've got the quote here, you thought that you could be Mrs. De Winter, live in her house, walk in her steps, take the things that were hers, but she's too strong for you. You can't fight her. No one ever got the better of her. Never, never. She was beaten in the end, but it wasn't a man. It wasn't a woman. It was the sea. Um which is great. <laughs> mm. And uh, and then, yeah, she, Joan is kind of, oh, stop it, you know, stop saying these horrible things to me. And she goes to the, the balcony and that's where she says, go ahead, jump, <laughs> which is pretty direct. Uh, he never loved you, so why go on living? Jump and it will all be over. 
yeah. it's genuinely disturbing, I think. Um, but it's also just like uh, her character up until this point has been, uh, you know, ambiguous in order to uh, activate the, the gaslighting aspect of the story, you know. Yeah. And now there's just the, the there's no pretense at all. And the, the abruptness at which she decides the gloves are off at this point in a, in a way which I didn't expect. I expected it to carry on with this sort of ambiguity. But then, you know, there's uh, a foghorn and the film just shifts <laughs> gears altogether. It really does. It really does. Uh, it's Yeah, it, it's funny because, you know, in another movie, I've got to stop making up speculative movies, which is slightly different from the one we're discussing, but, <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, you might imagine, I mean, I guess it's a gothic romance trope, isn't it? The icy, you know, mad woman in the attic who turns out to have a heart of gold. You know, she doesn't in this movie. And it's this isn't the climactic reveal of the villain. This is about halfway through the movie. And her journey past this point, Mrs. Danvers' journey past this point, is actually more nuanced than you'd imagine. Because you're right, she's laying it all on the line, basically here. She is, without any real um, uh, desire to kind of preserve herself here, because there is an assumed moment after this. I mean, luckily a foghorn come rings through the night and send her somewhere else. But like, she is entirely candid about her, her feelings. Um, she yes, doesn't like go- in this other fictional movie, this would be the climactic scene. And yes. then Maxim would burst into the room and shoot Mrs. Danvers or something like that. But, <laughs> That's right, uh, yeah, yeah. Th- yeah, the fact that this occurs halfway through, you're like, oh my God, th- w- w- what else can happen, you know? <laughs> yes, yes. And, and, and actually the film more or less leaves her behind for, for quite a while now. Mm. Um, because we go into the kind of the, the close of this act, which is the kind of reveal scene. Um, uh, a, a foghorn blasts through the night, a ship has run aground due to the fog, and in the rescue of its crew, a sunken boat has been discovered with Rebecca's body in it. And we have this um, uh, this scene in the boathouse, which is, I mean, I think in a film full of brilliant Hitchcocky scenes, this is my favourite. Um it's a little play <laughs> that takes place in this little space, which was Rebecca's own um, space. This was her sort of hangout. Um, where And uh, uh, the camera moves. Someone talked in this documentary about how the camera moves as they're talking about her mm. as Rebecca herself. The camera becomes her and moves across her objects. And as Maxim's telling the story about what happened on a, on a night, uh, you know, the night she died, um, the camera follows her steps and that's how they kind of, because there was lots of discussions when they were making the movie, well, how can we cast, you know, if we're going to do a flashback, how could we cast Rebecca when she's, you know, the version in our imaginations is so much better than anyone could, you know, ever play. And that's the solution that Hitchcock has that in this moment when she's being conjured by this kind of final truthful conversation about her, where it all comes out, um, he allows the camera to take on her uh, her her vision basically, and it's it's this brilliant scene where it all comes out about uh, how uh, Maxim and Rebecca actually felt about each other, and uh, this is the twist, which is I didn't see coming. I, mm. <laughs> I I mean I'm terrible at twists. I never I never see them coming ever. Um, I'm, I'm just an idiot for them. Um, but this <laughs> one, uh, apart from Arrival, I got that one because I <laughs> I learned what the Sapir Wolf hypothesis was at university. Oh. And <laughs> there's a certain point in that movie where they talk about the way that the alien sentences work. And I just went, oh, okay. <laughs> the whole film unfolded. But that's the only time it's happened. In this movie, uh, you know, she's talking to him about 
you know the pain that Maxim feels uh, that his 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 uh, first wife had been a, a sham marriage. Uh, Rebecca declared that she had no intention of keeping to her vows, but would pretend to be the perfect wife and hostess for the sake of appearances. And Joan Fontaine says, you know, you must have loved her terribly. And, and Olivia says, you thought I loved Rebecca. You thought that I hated her, he says. And I mean, yes, maybe I'm an idiot for not seeing that coming, but I still think that moment is so badass. <laughs> mm. Yeah, it's definitely out of the blue. Although, I mean, it's slightly weird that Maxim would seem to think that the protagonist would think anything other because there's literally nothing <laughs> that could have clued her into uh, imagining that Maxim hated her. Uh, yes, it's a very pati- very particular narcissism there, isn't yeah. it? It's kind of, you didn't know what I thought, but never told you or made any kind of, what an idiot you are for not realising my secrets, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> my terrible dark secrets. Um, yes, and we find out what really happened, which was when she claimed that she was pregnant by her cousin and lover. He's her first cousin, it's terrible. She <laughs> taunted Maxim that the estate might pass to someone other than Maxim's line. Uh, during a heated argument, she fell, struck her head, and died. Now, this is this is an interesting bit because in the book, he's just he kills her, right? Yeah. In the book, I think he strikes her, um, and no, she he falls shoots down. Her. He sh- does he shoot her blindly? Yeah, he yeah. fucking shoots her. <laughs> just, <laughs> he straight up shoots her in a rage as well. Yeah. Well, I mean, that, hmm. well, I don't know whether we want to get into the differences between our adaptations, but I, I, I maybe we should circle back to this after we've got through the the, the final act because there's there's I think there's quite a lot to say um, about the different adaptations that sort of tie in uh, all kinds of things, which are maybe better elucidated once we have the whole thing in front of us. But um, yes, yes uh, it's, it's worth, version... I mean, maybe it's worth saying that one of the reasons that uh, in this version uh, that uh, Rebecca is hit by Maxim supposedly, but then only trips and falls and bashes her own head open on a piece of fishing tackle um, this, is, this is due to compliance with the Hollywood production code, uh, which mandated that any s- cinematic spousal murder must be seen to receive punishment. Um, uh, and uh, for, for reasons that will become a, become clear, uh, that meant that uh, it was impossible for Maxim to then kill Rebecca outright in this in this story. And maybe just to say something else about the Hollywood production code, because it's kind of. It's kind of a, a weird piece of uh, history, but there was a, 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 a moral panic um, uh, in in Hollywood, not only about the content of the films, um, but also about the sort of Hollywood lifestyle itself. And uh, so, the the state of cinema was essentially being threatened by state by state codes of cens- censorship, uh, which would mean just recutting the movie for each state. Uh, so Hollywood then decided to sort of uh, see this off. They would then adopt uh, a code themselves, which they would self-police. Um, and it prohibited depictions of just all, all sorts of things, um, in- including mixed-race couples, incidentally, if you want to know where this sort of moralizing gets you. Um, and there's, a, there's this, uh, this brilliant photograph called Thou Shalt Not, uh, which is sort of like a, a poster um, decrying this, this this code of censorship. And it's staged to simultaneously list and break 10 principles of the code. <laughs> and it's got this drunk, drug-addicted woman in lingerie pointing a gun at a dead policeman. <laughs> um, but uh, yes, anyway, that's... Oh, actually, I, I, a further weird aside. 
I think in the 1930s, it was uh, the guy who was in charge of policing Hollywood who had who had his own kind of um, ability to interfere and, and directly censor and change films. Uh, he was called Joseph Breen. And I do wonder if like Dr. Breen in Half-Life 2 has some resonance for that, you know, because he's also uh, a sort of collaborator with oppression who is brought in to self-police humanity's willful nature. Uh, yes. Maybe not. Maybe that's completely unrelated, but uh, I like to think it's an echo. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Um, but anyway, that's that's sorry. That's the reason that uh, that um, uh, Maxim doesn't kill Rebecca in this it, this version. It's funny, isn't it? Because even if you haven't read the book, you can tell by the way the scene plays that it is a, something they've changed from the book because it's so obvious what should have happened there. But mm. the fact he says, "I hit her," yes, I did do that, and she did fall over, but then she got up again. But then she tripped and died. <laughs> yeah. Well, you don't um, need to believe him. That's the thing. I mean, no. uh, the, the film sort of... Uh, I don't think the qu- film is particularly equivocatory about this. I think the film sides with uh, Maxim uh, and the protagonist. And through their eyes, it absolves them. Um, but uh, certainly the, the the original book is uh, much more ambiguous. And I think that has uh, an interesting... Um, repercussions to how the whole thing lands but um we, we'll probably come back to that later when i because i want to i want to bang on about the differences between the adaptation at some point yes yes absolutely and uh, yeah um so yeah that kind of yeah the end of act two i would say i love i love dividing films up into arbitrary acts i would say that was <laughs> <laughs> the end of act two where uh, you know, he kind of says to her, "You're gonna, you're gonna leave me. You don't love me anymore." And she says, "No, I, I, I now I know that the truth and that you didn't technically kill, but were involved in covering up the death of Rebecca. I do, in fact, still love you very, very much more than any, ever, ever, if, more than ever, if anything." No, she doesn't say that, but she basically mm. says that. Um, this is a weird one. Like, she has been so passive, so much of a sort of. Uh, I was going to say candle in the wind, but that's weird. Um, but she is, <laughs> <laughs> and uh, um, and it is the fact that the truth is is kind of given to her that that kind of gets her into a kind of um, bit more of an active role. Although, as you said earlier, not that much, but just a bit more. Um, as we come in on the third act, she's wearing um, a black dress with some shoulder pads. Oh. <laughs> Symbolising her agency, because shoulder pads mean agency. <laughs> um, and, uh, yep, she's going to do some crime covering up. So what's happened is the body's been found, and Maxim is basically, you know, sus- suspected of murder because of, of, of the kind of discrepancy in, in how everything's sort of shaken out here. Um, as you said earlier, this bit of the film's quite weird because it turns into a sort of legal thriller for a little while. <laughs> Um, while we try and work out what's happening. I'm not sure this movie does a, you know, I think probably this last act is probably the weakest Mm. um, because it mostly is just um, Maxim getting away with murder or not murder um, through luck. (laughs) Yeah. And being a posh man. You know, it's funny watching him like talk to the chief of police and chief of police saying, we're about to play some golf once it's all blown over and just thinking... (laughs) Wow, that's some white privilege right there. <laughs> yeah. But I don't think, weirdly, the film doesn't seem to be criticising that. It seems to be saying, that's that's fine. Yeah. Um, which is disturbing. <laughs> it turns out she had cancer. Uh, she wasn't pregnant. So she was going to die anyway. Um, 
uh, I mean, I know I'm sort of racing through this, but the movie, you know, it kind of wraps up pretty quick here. Um, and uh, this is when um, uh, George Sanders' character comes back into play uh, and tells them, he gets into the car with them, which is one of my another one of my favorite scenes in the movie. He gets into the car with them and starts eating their lunch. <laughs> mm. This is where he tells them that he's a perfectly ordinary, harmless bloke, and uh, tells him tells him that he maligns the feeling of, of driving a motor car that is not your own, which I really like, considering mm. <laughs> he was the guy who was screwing uh, Rebecca. Um, and, oh yeah, uh, I, gosh, I never thought of that. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> and he basically admits that he just wants to have the experience of uh, living very well without doing anything, which I think is honest, if nothing else. Um, mm. And he's going to blackmail uh, Maxim uh, in order to get that. Well, this is the interesting thing. I see uh, because the film presents um, Favelle as being a, a disgusting, and grasping asshole. Um, it gets away with the fact that he is earnestly interested in solving the mystery of who killed Rebecca, and he thinks, with good reason, that Maxim is the murderer. And his attempts to expose Maxim are. That just that's entirely just that he does it, and it, it's weird that he's the bad guy. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah, <laughs> it's a tricky one. It's it's it's. I mean, no one in this movie is anything like as bad as Rebecca, which is why, you know, which is why they all kind of get away with it, really, because mm. she was so awful and she was the this kind of being of pure evil, basically. Um, no one else is really ever going to be subject. Uh, you know, it's this moment because they bring in Mrs. Danvers to kind of talk to the police and, and kind of uh, she gives them the name of the doctor that she'd gone to see to sort of about her pregnancy. And he's the guy who gives the final piece of the puzzle. Where, you know, she was terminally ill, basically. So that's why, you know, Rebecca went and taunted Maxim was because she wanted to sort of stick it to him she knew she was going to die anyway but this scene where mrs danvers sort of comes in and, and is kind of forced to testify in front of all these people and there's this bit where she says she used to just laugh at you all she used to find you so ridiculous and she just used to sit there and laugh and i find that so creepy <laughs> there's something very creepy about that like someone who is so um utterly deranged in terms of their you know psychopathy that they just find everyone kind of hilarious hmm. I mean, again, it's a weird view of, of, of womanhood being in the, in this movie. You know, women are, well, I mean, let's list them off. There are, you know, bossy aristocrats, shrinking violets with no agency, um, you know, obsessed housekeepers. <laughs> you know, it's, it's sort of, uh, it's very hard to be a woman in Hitchcock's world, I think. And I think the movie really punishes Rebecca and punishes her above anyone else, really. Um mm. Uh, and uses her death as an excuse to basically let Maxim get away with mur- get away with murder. So let's let's do the differences between adaptations thing now. Yes, because I haven't uh, seen the uh, Ben Wheatley one. Ah, well, that's that's interesting again. But like, I, I think it's, uh, I think the whole thing is much more ambiguous in in the original book. Like Hitchcock's film fairly unabashedly sides with Maxim. Uh, and uh, and the protagonist, but you're really not under any obligation in the the book to believe Maxim. Um, obviously, the protagonist does at that time, but we never. But the book ends uh, without the denouement that occurs in the film, without really any closure on whether Maxim is going to go to jail. Uh, 
it doesn't close any of these things. It doesn't tell you what happens later. And as you say, the narration occurs in this sort of nameless time period. You don't know whether, I mean, Maxim could turn out to be a complete bastard after the close of this novel. Um, and that's, that's still a possibility that's floating there. And, you know, that, that he's lied all along and actually Rebecca was a fine person. <laughs> yeah. That's still sort of floating there. And I think, and it's not just an ambiguity for, for whether Maxim is uh, a bad person or not, but the fact that Maxim in the book sh straight up shoots Rebecca in a rage and that the protagonist instantly makes her peace with it changes the protagonist's level of agency, I think, in is quite a key way. It changes her morality in quite a key way. And I think this this feels like it's much more in conversation with the, like the myths and stories that precede Rebecca, like the myth of Bluebeard, uh, sort of the multiple wife murdering, murdering aristocrat, and Jane Eyre as well, which is, you know, similarly... Uh, it has a inscrutable and dangerous uh, man in it, Mister Rochester. Yeah, Wuthering Heights. Um, is it? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I, actually, uh, the uh, the recent Jane Eyre adaptation with uh, Mia Wasikowska and Michael Fassbender is terrific, and I think Fassbender is absolutely terrifying in it. But like, part of the point, Rebecca, of the novel is that Maxim could quite easily turn out to be a misogynistic murderer, um, like. The question of whether he is Bluebeard or not is is sort of like the the, the central tension of it. Um, Schroding is Bluebeard, you might call it. <laughs> uh, and I think Hitchcock does play with that a little, but he kind of largely depletes maximum of his sinister qualities. Like he gets shouty every now and again, and there's a sort of flicker of danger, but no more. And the fact that he doesn't kill Rebecca, even though that choice was probably out of Hitchcock's hands, uh, at least, you know, doesn't kill Rebecca by his own account, sort of compounds... a a, a like canonical reading in which he is also a victim of Rebecca and the new actually the new adaptation by Ben Wheatley sort of splits the difference like he he does shoot and kill Rebecca but only after Rebecca has put the gun to her chest and goaded him into doing it saying that only by killing her will he ever be free and you know you know divorce is a thing that's a, that's another way <laughs> but um but the, even in the context of that film the film wants to exonerate him as well and sort of weirdly, ironically, at the time, because uh, uh, Army Hammer plays Maxim in in this film, I thought like Army Hammer was just sort of too puppyishly nice, mm. <laughs> uh, and he sort of like barks, but he never looks like he'll bite. Um, and you know, uh, sadly, things have been since alleged about Army Hammer, which might then you know those uh, cast his performance in a, in a different light. Uh -huh. um, <laughs> yeah, Maxim's admitted murderousness sort of impacts. The protagonist's level of complicity or or her credulity you know like de maurier's protagonist exonerates him instantaneously for the worst possible version of the crime and that version of the protagonist is simply pleased that he loves her more than he loved rebecca and so you know that that sort of indicts the protagonist in a way in a in a, in a, in a kind of dark way which i don't think either of the two films read do no, the book's much more troubling, isn't it? It's yeah. kind of it, it is it's a book that's genuinely looking at what uh, the gothic romance means, what you know, what the Jane Eyre's of this world means, where there's this kind of you know this this previous wife, this kind of previous sin which is hanging over you all, um, and and what that actually you know what how that would play, you know, what that means right. for one's sense of self in this in this situation. And when the um, when the protagonist just wholly accepts Maxim Maxim's uh, account of things and decides then to cover things up, 
like you don't know whether that's naivety or calculation. Like, it, is she just refusing to be, uh, you know, another victim of Rebecca's ghost, or is she walking right into another form of victimhood at the hands of a killer husband? You don't know at the end of that book. No. And I think I like it because because Hitchcock presents a scenario where there is less for her to forgive Maxim for. It's then sort of like shrouded in in, in less ambiguity. And as a result of that, it can never provide the heroine the same self-assertion or like self-dooming arc uh, that occurs in the book. Like the name, nameless protagonist of the film begins as this like soppy, naive girl and ends fairly soppy and naive too, I think, even though Maxim is sort of protesting otherwise. Oh, you've aged a billion years, damn you. <laughs> sort of. And I, but I think it's also a conscious choice that Hitchcock removes her agency because in the book she accompanies Maxim to the doctor to the doctor to make that that key discovery about Rebecca's illness, and then they drive back to uh, Mandalay and see it burning together, and that's where it ends on the road to Mandalay, you know, and the ashes blew towards us with the salt wind from the sea, and it's not even explicit that Mandalay is burning, like we assume it is. And we, but we don't ever get to see Danvers being toasted. We don't know, you know, what the legal fate of Maxim is, or whether he turns out to be a shit. The only thing we know is that the heroine survives to give this account, distantly yeah. recollected some years later. And I just love how off-key and ambiguous that is. Uh, whereas Hitchcock just leaves her at home while the men do the actual work of detection, and by doing so, this, he places her at Danvers' mercy. And he does something brilliant with that because then he's trying to conjure this uh, this heart-in-mouth moment of tension as Maxim and Crawley are driving back to Mandalay and they see the building aflame. And you expect, as the viewer, that uh, you know the, the protagonist is going to be in the burning building, um, and that that's where the sort of the excitement and thrill of that denouement occur. But she's you know she's safely outside, and Danvers gets a dramatic exit instead. They make make a point to show that she brings the dog with her as well. <laughs> yes, because there's yeah. definitely going to be someone who's going. But what about that dog we saw? <laughs> Did the dog Jasper. get it out? Jasper. Jasper. But I, you know, I think Hitchcock sort of buys that dramatic thrill, thrill at the expense of the the evolution of the film's heroine. And I honestly just, I suspect that that is Hitchcock's own chauvinism showing through. And it just seemed more believable and sympathetic to him to have a protagonist who is gooeyly in love with Maxim and just believes him implicitly. And so that, you know, the protagonist can't be accused of deceit then because she just believes it. Rather than and rather than have a more complex heroine who develops this dark agency and consciously chooses to absolve murder in pursuit of her own happiness, yes, which which will come to, won't we, with Brighton Rock? Um, uh, Sorry, one last thing. I know I've been I've just been talking stupidly for ages, but like the, the new adaptation goes the exact other way. Like the the way that uh, Maxim actually gets locked up in this. And so there's nobody to go and visit the doctor. And so the heroine goes and visits the doctor by herself is, and actually breaks into his offices to obtain the necessary evidence. Does she do like uh, um, Tom Cruise in Mission Impossible and sort of <laughs> hangs down on a wire? <laughs> well, no, she, I mean, she does it. It's quite plausible. She says she's left her handbag in there and the night porter lets her in. Uh, Why didn't Tom Cruise right... do that in Mission Impossible? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> But then it has this weird, there's a, there's like another, uh, it, it, you know, the line about how um, only the sea could claim uh, somebody like Rebecca. That's changed in this to be a sort of slightly kind of out of place 
uh, feminist statement where um, uh, Danvers asserts how what a kind of self you know willful and self possessed woman Rebecca was. So obviously a man had to kill her, which is which is an interesting take on it. But like also, I don't know how I feel about the association of uh, independence with evil <laughs> yeah. that doesn't seem to make sense to me and then and then the um at the end of the new adaptation uh, you get an extra scene in which they uh, the cup the happy couple are buying a place in cairo for some reason and um and then it ends with this this last line i woke up this morning and left the dead behind i can see the woman i am now and i know that i have made the right decision to save the one thing worth walking through flames for love <laughs> <laughs> which is uh which is not a it's not a great i wouldn't have added that line <laughs> i don't think no i mean the movie at least has a bit of nihilism to it i mean they do snog with this big like fucking inferno going on behind them i mean that's pretty cool i like that <laughs> um you know miss danvers dies horribly mm. house falling in around her there's, so there's something of that there but I do think it is a it is a very big ask. I mean, I haven't seen the the Ben Weekly one, but the idea of I don't know Rebecca is a a postmodern comment on on an antiquated storytelling technique about you know a woman being whisked off her feet and taken to a you know a, a place full of secrets. And I think there probably is an adaptation to be had there that could do that in twenty twenty something. But, uh, you know, it sounds to me like they kind of, as you say, they sort of, in some bits, they, they kind of put the head down and went for it a bit more. And then in others, they just couldn't help but do the sort of, um, you know, BBC One Sunday night kind of take on the on on the material. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I do. I do. I don't want to be too mean on, on Ben Wheatley's version. There are things that I, I like about it. Um, uh, Kristen Scott Thomas as Mrs. Danvers is absolutely amazing in the role, as she is in literally every performance she's ever given, I think. Um, but she she has a, a, a quite a different take on Mrs. Danvers, which is sort of uh, whisperingly evil <laughs> in, a, in, a, in a way, which is also kind of, you know, superficially, plausibly, not charming exactly, but charismatic yeah. um, in a way which makes uh, the protagonist's deception by her much more kind of um, believable. Um, but yeah, I, 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 I don't think Wheatley's version otherwise improves on, on Hitchcock's, um, despite its well, well-intentioned attempts to make the protagonist kind of more, uh, more powerful, especially in the last part of the movie. I don't think it ends up saying anything, anything complicated about her absolution of Maxim, which I think the, um, the book does. It leaves that much more kind of like a, a hanging bum note. No, and I, I saw a quote from Wheatley actually, where he was just as I was, you know, reading around on Wikipedia today, where he was saying that he felt like, you know, the story had been fundamentally robbed of something by, um, by changing the, you know, the murder to an accident. You know, mm. he wanted to, he wanted to give the story, you know, that back. And you know, Ben Wheatley is a clever guy. You know, I'm, I'm sure he doesn't, you know, see himself as sort of shadow boxing with Hitchcock. You know, I think he just wanted to do a different, you know. Um, take on it and i think it is true that that something is robbed when you take that out of mm. the story but it's a movie made in 1940 you're just not going to get there <laughs> yeah. um uh and as it is it you know even though it's not that story i still think it kind of i don't know it's got a big fire i think the big fire is probably there <laughs> standing in for for the well, kind I mean, of you yeah. know mrs yeah. danvers exit is 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 a, is a fantastic invention on the part of um hitchcock i think um, yes. partly because of just 
the expression on her face as the ceiling caves in on her is like one of religious ascension like it's uh, she looks delighted in a kind of moment of grace kind of way which is deeply deeply troubling (laughs) yeah yeah pure like rapture (laughs) it's Mm. really creepy well she's being claimed reclaimed by hell from whence she came i guess is the inference (laughs) yeah and then the movie closes on the rebecca's bed burning um, mm. And then midnight all kick in, and then the song plays over the credits. Um, I did. Uh, there's one anecdote about the kind of war between uh, Selznick and Hitchcock about that final shot, which is quite interesting. That apparently Selznick was really keen that the smoke from the burning Mandalay formed the letter R <laughs> in the sky, yeah. Yeah. and and Hitchcock took advantage of his distraction uh, with Gone with the Wind in order to change it to being. Um, this embroidered pillow burning, which because <laughs> he thought it was a little too on the nose, to, <laughs> quite rightly, to have the, the smoke form the letter R. See, but, I don't know. May, maybe I'm just flamboyant, but in the documentary, <laughs> you can hear, you know, Peter Bogdanovich interviewing Alfred Hitchcock, and he, you know, Bogdanovich is saying, like, I heard about the thing with the, you know, that R in the sky, and, and Hitchcock, you know, with just polite contempt, just going, yes, the R in the sky, you know, that's what he wanted, you know, and all this sort of stuff. Mm. And I was thinking, that's not so. I think that's quite cool. I think that's quite metal. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, I wouldn't I wouldn't hate that. Um, I mean, I think Hitchcock's probably is the better one, but, uh, you know. Um, <laughs> ideas ideas always seem, you know, terrible in retrospect, I think. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, I mean, yeah. Uh, so uh, that's the end of Rebecca. What a movie. Yeah. Uh, Flies by, doesn't it? It's only it's, like, it's over two hours long, but it actually goes quite quickly. Oh gosh! Considering yeah. that almost all of it takes place in like one location, and you know, it really, really rips along. Um, Barely hangs together at places. Like I, I think that the first part in Monte Carlo, like it's noticeable that all the actors are delivering their lines incredibly fast, as though the <laughs> film just wants to get out of there. Yeah. But uh, but like it's oh, it's just a delicious film. It's you know melodramatic. It's, it's kind of lusty. It's lurid. It's extreme. Uh, and yes, it doesn't. It doesn't feel like a, a fusty old mill movie from the before times, as you might fear. No, it's a it's a rollicking ride. Yeah, and you just got that kind of poetry. With I mean, I, you know, I, I, I hated myself when I just I just saying that I hate myself for kind of being almost like one of those dusty golden age Hollywood types. But there is a kind of poetry to how Hitchcock moves his camera. There's there's a directedness and a directiveness in how he pauses how he moves how he makes the camera you know there's you know he he positions the camera in a close shot of two people and then he'll follow the scene on from there all stuff Mm. that no one ever bothers doing now because it looks weird and doesn't doesn't kind of um chime with modern tastes Um, i'll tell you what though i mean out of all the things that make uh old movies feel weird uh like the the fact that the aspect ratio forces characters to stand so close to each other when they're having conversation is probably <laughs> yeah. the number one. But that, I mean that's true up until like what the nineteen nineties, I think. So yeah, <laughs> it's, it's yeah, it's noticeable. You're like, oh god, I bet you could smell his breath standing there. It's, I wouldn't, I would never, especially in post pandemic times. So yeah. just, uh, it makes you feel very awkward. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, should we talk about Brighton Rock a bit? Yeah, I mean, gosh. This is such a good companion piece, isn't it? Like an, another film in which a central plot thread of it is that a naive young girl falls in love with and marries somebody who might potentially plan to kill her. 
Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you know, but like uh, the, the contrast, I mean, this is very superficial, but the contrast is that, you know, whilst Hitchcock exonerates Maxim, or, or at least like the, the protagonist makes peace with Maxim's nature, you keep thinking that Pinky might be redeemed, but he never is. <laughs> No, it's a it's a dark film without redemption. It has incredible disquieting ambiguity. There's no easy answers here to human nature. It's squalid. It's kind of almost a wretched little story, which exists at the exact opposite end of the social spectrum to Rebecca, but shares so much with it. You know, it's it's really interesting that you that you, you pick this to, to go together. I mean, well, they're both beach films, aren't they? So, they're both beach nice. films, yeah. It, <laughs> it's funny, isn't it, that, like, you know, in in uh, Rebecca, Maxim is given a second chance and he takes it, yeah? He, he takes that second chance and him and, in the movie version of things, him and Joan Fontaine are going to are gonna live and they're going to be in love and stuff like that. In this movie, uh, uh, Pinky also gets a second chance. He also kind of gets away with murder in the same way as Maxim but decides to just keep doing the horrible things that he's going to do to the point of his own destruction. Um, I was fascinated by him as a character um, who just never changes. He's exactly the awful person he is when we first meet him. And, you know, he is the main character of the movie and he has no redemption. In fact, the movie's about that. (laughs) Um, And I just thought, I just, it's just great. Um, You know, it's another character who says that she's like Brighton Rock which is the same. It says Brighton, you know, wherever you bite it, you know, all the way through. Mm. But actually, I think it, it applies much more to him <laughs> as a character, yeah. someone who is just top to bottom, this guy. Um, so, yeah, he should probably give a, a quick synopsis of <laughs> what it's about. Yeah, so Brighton Rock, based on the novel by Graham Greene, uh, adapted by Graham Greene and Terence Rattigan. I didn't know that Terence Rattigan also did it. Hmm. Um, uh and it is the story of a kind of crime that goes down in Brighton, 1935. Uh, a gangster's been killed, and the reporter who reported on the story is kind of hunted down by the gang members who, um, uh, who, uh, who are exposed by his story. And the 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 film is basically about them trying to cover up for uh, his murder and kind of co- trying to cover their tracks. And the inheritor of this gang is one Pinky, um, who is played by uh, um, Richard Attenborough. I was going to say David Attenborough. It's <laughs> not David Attenborough. It's his brother, <laughs> Richard Attenborough. And that kind of take, we kind of follow Pinky and he kind of, you know, his relationship with this girl who is a potential witness to this crime and kind of how he sort of brings her under his spell and how they're kind of hunted down by a plucky, uh, characterful lady uh, called. I'd, uh, I'd Arnold. Uh, and yeah, and it takes place in sort of interwar Brighton, which the opening crawl describes as, you know, it's, it's this kind of uh, a cradle of crime and filth, <laughs> uh, which is funny to think about Brighton, which is sort of, people call it Islington by the sea now, don't they? Which is, yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, but it's, it's, it's a, it's a really, uh, it's directed by the Bolting brothers who are kind of, guys who sort of directed a whole bunch of stuff kind of across the span of, of kind of post-war cinema quite for quite a long period. Um, and yeah, Richard Attenborough's kind of star-making turn in this film. He is fantastic. Uh, he's another actor, just like Laurence Olivier, who I don't really know from movies that well. Mm. Like, I know him from this. I know him from The Great Escape. 
Jurassic Park <laughs> and Miracle on 34th Street, I would say, are the, the main movies I know in the uh, Richard Attenborough uh, oeuvre. He's good in all of those, but um, I mostly know him as a, as a pretty good director of, of some great movies like uh, A Bridge Too Far and uh, Shadowlands and Brian, yeah. uh, things like that. I don't know how, what your prior experience of, uh, of the old Dick Master General was. Um, purely in his bearded older form. Seeing him as a young man is is is, is very strange. Uh, maybe that also lends the film a, a sort of uh, another kind of aspect to its sort of unease. It's, it's, it's seeing somebody transformed that you're otherwise quite familiar with as as something different. Yeah, yeah, he's he's uh, he's great. Um, and there's a there's a whole cast of really kind of um, uh, kind of ordinary looking. Uh, British kind of character actors in this movie, which I think it's got Doctor really Who in it, hasn't it? It's got, got Doctor William Who's Hartnell. in it, yeah. yeah. William Hartnell, yeah, and then playing playing quite a different role again. That's a, that's a he's a, a character actor I only know as Doctor Who when he was quite an, you know uh, older uh, and slightly emaciated looking gentleman. In this, mm. he plays like a, a hard nut, you know, hoodlum basically. Uh, he's yeah. he's quite menacing and charismatic in it in a way which you wouldn't necessarily expect from his his later roles as. Uh, Doctor Who, although that Doctor Who also carries an element of menace to him, but um, isn't he the Doctor Who who at one moment like tries to like kill someone with a rock? Did I hallucinate that in a fever dream, or is that something that actually happens in a Doctor Who episode? Uh, I'm not really a Doctor Who aficionado, but I do believe that the the William Hartnell's Doctor Who uh, is is um, does does try to kill somebody at some point, or is at least certainly a much more kind of potentially Mephistophelian figure than uh, the cuddlier Doctor Who's of uh, of late. I think there is, I think what it is, is there's a guy who's like, you know, like dying or moaning or something and making too much noise and he's about to kill him with a rock and someone says, Doctor, don't kill that guy with a rock. Um, uh, which I'm sure people will be able to correct me on. Um, anyway, <laughs> Brighton Rock. I mean, Again, this was something I saw as a as a teenager. Had a terrible, gruey transfer on it, a video or DVD. I think I had. Uh, and again, it's it's much nicer. You can watch it on YouTube. Um, uh, it's another kind of weird. Again, like often these movies, they, they've got weird genre sort of vibes. Um, this is a gangster movie, but it, it also kind of pushes against the kind of conventions of the genre as well. Um, it's very nihilistic. Um, I remember, you know, the book, which I haven't read since I was a teenager, but the book kind of wrong-footed me because it starts off as a gangster story. And then as so many um, uh, novels do by Graham Greene, it meanders into an exploration of Catholic guilt and original sin, um, (laughs) which he was very prone to doing um, all through his career. Uh, But at at the time when I first read it, I'd never read anything like that. You know, it, it starts off with this... With, with you know as, as a big crime sort of investigation and then becomes this really quite weird um exploration into that stuff um which this movie does too it leans a little bit less hard on that and i think uh probably for the best uh <laughs> but um yeah i mean we'll get into it uh the opening of this was brilliant i was i've forgotten how what a great like action-packed kind of opening this film has um you know with this this journalist uh Fred, uh, Fred Hale, who's who's published this story, being hunted down by Pinky and his goons through Brighton, um, uh, where we sort of meet all of the main players for the movie, um, and we get some great like sh- um, footage of nineteen forties Brighton, which I was so like pleased to see um, as they're sort of pursuing him through here. It's a twenty minute long sequence, like 
basically a quarter of the movie in its own way, you know, and it's kind of, you meet this character, you kind of, you know, go with him this sort of limited direction, uh, limited uh, amount of space, and then he's killed by Pinky. Um, I mean, again, I hate to sound like this guy, but like, it's the sort of slightly asymmetrical structuring that movies tend not to bother with now, you know, to spend, you know, a good deal of an already short movie on a character who's going to die and not going to be, you know, the, the movie exists. The rest of the movie is the fallout from this one event yeah. Um, and trying to sort of cover it up. And I just, I don't know, I just think that's really, really interesting. And, and, uh, and it's actually quite an exciting sequence. You have these big crowds and we go onto the Brighton pier and, if you've ever been to Brighton, if you've ever visited it for a day, you sort of know the basic geography of it, which is it has a train station up a hill and you can see the sea from the train station and you go down the train station to the front and you walk along the promenade to the left and you're at the pier. You know, it's kind of... Yeah. And the film uses that familiarity so you actually have a sense of, you know, direction with these this action sequence of, of where he's going and, and what he's doing. You know, I think that's really cool. There's a, there's a sign in the background of... of uh, there's a big billboard that says, just add a little bovril gives the concentrated goodness of beef <laughs> which uh, i was thankful for seeing um oh, do you do you know the the occult origins of Bo- bovril the occult origins of bovril no yeah or at least the name so it's yeah. it's, it's this is not really relevant to the film it's, yeah, a, it's i a don't port- care tell me <laughs> <laughs> it's a portmanteau of bov uh, for bovine meaning cow like and vril which is uh this sort of magic life force substance which appeared in an early science fiction novel called the coming race which as you might guess from the title uh it foreshadows and is later incorporated into esoteric nazism uh, <laughs> wow <laughs> yeah it's a it's a, it's a strange it's a, it's a strange deep cut but um yeah bovril is a, a horrible meat flavored tea <laughs> incidentally for anybody who doesn't know uh which is, is that i was i was in a hospital once quite poorly and the guy who was recovering in the bed next to me who is this yorkshireman who looked like a molten waxwork manatee he kept on drinking <laughs> bovril and as a result issued these absolutely unbelievable bovril flavored farts and and to this day i, I can't even look at the packaging of bovril without feeling nauseous <laughs> So uh, I didn't notice it in the film, but per- perhaps that was my subconscious trying to protect me. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's excellent. I love Bovril. <laughs> it's, great. It's, it's like a meat tea that you, that you can keep in a jar. It keeps forever. It's great. Um, anyway. <laughs> uh, yeah, so we have this opening sequence where we, we meet our players. We meet Ida Arnold, um, who's played by, uh, she's called Hermione Baddeley. She's kind of an interesting character. What did you make of Ida in this movie? Oh, she, I thought she was fantastic. I mean, I'd, uh, it's, it's it's almost a comic performance, uh, like something out of Carry On films. Uh, but I, I would very happily watch Ida investigates an ongoing police sort of procedural drama in which she solves crimes. Um, she's really interesting, I think, because the, the, there's a sort of tension in this film about how it presents... Uh, uh, the squalor of of reality, and I think this comes down to something to like Graham uh, Greene's own sort of sniffiness, uh, religious infused sniffiness about the fallen nature of man, etc. And he presents Brighton as being quite um, squalid, uh, or intends it to appear quite squalid. And so he has 
this character of Ida, who's you know quite not a high class character, who is quite uncultured and loud and and brash, but she is also like the the force of good in the film and sort of uh, indomitable figure. And it's not quite clear how uh, how you're meant to perceive this and Brighton and her class of people because there's a sort of level of disgust and disdain in the film which is then not entirely supported by the actions of of that character who is quite good natured and obviously if if you also if you choose to disdain these people then you are also siding with with pinky and who is a, a nihilistic figure who hates everything uh, and the world in which he inhabits what did, why yeah. what was what was your take on ida yeah I, I i i don't know she's she's interesting she's certainly an interesting spin on the occult detective trope <laughs> um <laughs> you know kind of a proto uh uh, John, is he called Hellraiser? That guy? Is that, have I got that oh name right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, John Constantine. John Constantine. Yeah. John Constantine. <laughs> <laughs> well, she's not really magical. <laughs> it should be no. Well, she does a bit of um. She does uh, her investigation kicks off with some um, automatic writing. Board. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, yeah. No, she's she's interesting. I kind of the first thing that happens in the movie is that she's singing in a bar, in a pub, uh, you know, and uh, Spicer, uh, so, not Spicer, sorry, Pinky, you know tells her to shut up. This kind of sets them up in opposition right at the beginning of the movie. Um, yeah, it's it's a funny film, really, because it, it it makes its business, you know, Pinky trying to kind of cover up for this for this this crime he's committed, which I like because, you know, often in gangster movies, someone's offed and, you know, they just sort of lied over how that plays out. You know, I like that there's a murder at the start of this movie. It's likely the first murder that, Pinky's ever committed um uh, he's going to commit at least one more in this movie but you know I like that that act of violence is given real weight and the fact that Ida is this presence who is very is a decent person is a very human human person although not a religious person and that she has had this like passing interaction with this guy who she just kind of likes something about um, this journalist um, you know, there was something in him that she saw that she liked, and she takes it upon herself to kind of fight for him and fight for the memory of him. And I don't know, that's a very, hmm. that's how things should be done, isn't it? You know, that, that yeah. should be what happens um, when people die for awful, you know, meaningless reasons, you know. Um, and so it's Wait. nice to have hmm. that, to, to have that, have a kind of a character in the movie who cares about, you know, that. Um, I think it's it's important that. Like the misanthropy of the film is a projection of Pinky's misanthropy, right? It's important that the extreme disgust which Pinky feels towards the world is really and accurately framed as being his problem, you know? He he sort of brings his own hell with him. Uh, and the fact that this, this force for good could exist in the same, you know, low fallen world and yet be uh, completely uncorrupted by it, really, is, is, is the thing that sort of... Um, shows you that, that that pinky's own own uh nihilism is is a mistake i think yes i guess it's tricky because it's hard it's you know i guess why i asked her what you thought of her was that it's hard not to feel like she is a you know a, a patronizing characterization of you know working mm. class people i guess and graham green was certainly not above those those kind of things and it's just that her his contempt for her uh, is outstripped by his contempt for you know Pinky and and I think he was very down on pop culture generally. Um, 
uh, and by pop culture, I mean teenage gangsters, um, <laughs> yeah. teenagers in general. I, I, I don't know. It's 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 interesting. It's it, it's a it's a down and dirty feeling movie, and it generally doesn't feel patronizing. It feels kind of quite real and and mm. realistic, I think. But it is interesting that Ida, the character who is our investigator, essentially, is the one who rings a little bit false to me, even though. She's a lot of fun to watch and, you know, mm. dressing up, you know, solving crimes while dressed up as a kind of uh, vaudeville music hall clown. <laughs> you know, I'm always going to be in for that. Um, well, it's, it's interesting. I was, I was just about to use the word clown in a different context. I was going to say that, like, whilst Pinky is this sort of demonic, nihilistic, misogynistic, yet also asexual figure. In fact, he spurns all kinds of human pleasure, basically, uh, in his pursuit of absolute hatred. I mean, he uh, you would think that he is, uh, and the film sets him up to be this this uh, creature of absolute menace, but like, he is actually himself just a total clown. Like, he is a child pretending to be a man, and he inherits this this responsibility for this criminal gang but he has absolutely he he messes it up at the very first moment and then continues to make bad decisions <laughs> throughout because of his level of ex- inexperience uh i love that at the moment he's committed the very first crime he goes out onto the gun range on the pier and asks the guy what the time is and the guy says i'm not going to give you an alibi for what time <laughs> he right, gets yeah. him immediately well this um, is it apart from the people he can directly you know like cow or kill yeah. Like the universe in general is absolutely not convinced by Pinky. <laughs> like, yeah, he's 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 very interesting in that way because he is. I, I, when you said that, um, you know, just before we were talking, that he he is kind of really incompetent <laughs> and gets everything wrong. I, you know, I hadn't considered that before, but it, it is true. And you, and I guess it 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 reminded me of what gangsters often kind of are, really which is just people who are more willing to be awful than other people, you know? Mm. Like, he has risen to the top because he is capable of acts of horrific violence, which really shouldn't be a qualification for anything, (laughs) except in this world where he is, you know, on the up and up. Um, uh, But he doesn't really have any skill or worth as a human being. He's just, you know, he's just this kind of force of nature. Um, And, uh, yeah... It, it, I was uh, to move on a little bit. I was really pleased with the weird, like the colleague Kibber cards. Like this is like a promotional thing, which apparently was a real thing back in the day, where you know this journalist is going to be leaving these cards uh, through uh, throughout Brighton in this certain time period, and, and they're going to you get ten bob if you find one. Um, and one of them is picked up by uh, our sort of heroine for this, not heroine, sorry, but the, the kind of woman <laughs> in this movie um, who is uh, Rose, uh, Rose Brown, played by Carol Marsh. Now, um, she is uh, a fascinating character. She's probably the most nuanced character in the movie, I think, as presented. She's very weak, weak-willed. She falls under Pinky's thrall almost immediately, and her devotion to him is is kind of slavish and 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 intense from start to finish basically um and she sort of withstands his his ill treatment of her only strengthens her feelings towards him but despite all this she to me feels like a much more realistic and easy to empathize character than 
uh, Joan Fontaine and Rebecca. Um, what, what do you think about Rose, Marsh? Uh, I think, yeah, she is sympathetic. I think um, it is primarily uh, a result of how obviously young and unschooled in the world uh, she is. Whereas um, uh, I, th- I think in maybe Rebecca, that sort of wide-eyed naivety feels more like a crutch. Uh, whereas here, this uh, it is frustrating to see Rose um, go down these paths with Pinky, but it's kind of plausible that somebody you know is she 17 i think she's 17 yeah um, i think that's right somebody of that that level of inexperience uh in the first flush of you know true love for somebody would make all of the bad decisions that she does um and she's not necessarily you know, a, 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 um, a creature given to great deep thought or <laughs> introspection um you wouldn't want to call her stupid but like i don't think there's there's any pretense that she is necessarily capable uh of identifying uh pinky's designs i don't think she's she just it would never occur to her and that's the the thing sort of the tragic through line of it is her complete and utter belief in in pinky and his goodness which is em- emphasized by the fact that at one point she asks him to sort of record on a uh, gramophone record, which is you know an amusement arcade attraction, to, to go into a booth and record something onto a gramophone record, which you can then keep. She asks him to sort of record his devotion to her, and he goes into this booth and uh, says a lot of very unpleasant things, and she she holds on to that record in the utter belief that it's. Uh, that it's that is it is what she thinks it is that it's uh, his his uh, message of devotion to her and um do you want to get to the ending of the film straight away <laughs> well we can ha- hold on for a moment i think okay. um but yes the recording he makes is uh what you want me to say is i love you well here's the truth i hate you you little slut you make me think you make me sick which wow uh and that scene is framed with her like staring through the glass as he records this like staring happily through as he says these horrible things about it. it's mm. really quite really quite chilling i mean it's it's uh, you know we can move towards the end quite quickly i think because it is a movie that kind of um you know it kind of it gets into kind of the, the sort of violent uh, way in which pinky is trying to sort of cover his tracks um you know and the violence in this movie is genuinely shocking to to my eyes you know all of that face slashing with razor blades is really fucking nasty Mm. Um, and you know, uh, Pinky himself gets his face slashed and gets his scar. Um, the movie is called was called Young Scarface in America. Um, and there's this one particular scene I want to talk about, which is I think at the time was notorious. Um, which is when uh, Pinky wants to kill Spicer. So Spicer is the kind of the one who probably messed up and and put the put the token down um, in the place where Rose work and, and, and was seen by him. So he's, Pinky's been trying to get uh, Spicer killed um, and has had his own uh, face uh, slashed up in, 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 in trying to do that. And it's got this fantastic sequence with, uh, in this kind of grotty um, house where they all live, uh, which is basically Pinky um, pushing Spicer down the stairs. Um, and it's really harrowing because he does this thing. It's beautifully staged. Um, he walks out of the room. He goes over to the banister. He pushes it to confirm that it is, um, you know, going to break. Um, and then 
uh, Spicer comes out of the room and Pinky basically sort of backs him uh, into this banister. Uh, he's trying to sort of get out of the life of crime, I guess. And Pinky goes to shake his hand and then pushes him over the banister. And it's a really brutal fall. He he goes, he crashes through the banister. He he smashes a light on his way down, which because it's a gas light starts, you know, sort of firing flames out. And you actually see the moment of impact as he hits on the bottom floor, whack his face onto the onto the onto the wooden floor. Really kind of shocking violence for 1948, you know. Um yeah, it's just a really um unnerving scene that is 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 shot with quite frankly Hitchcockian. Uh, sort of taste and uh, tension and release. Yeah, so uh, we kind of, um, you know, by the by, uh, Pinky tries and fails to sort of elude uh, capture. Um, Ida is kind of trying to track her down, track him down and, and stop him. And and as things go go on, as we were saying, it kind of, it kind of all works out okay for Pinky. <laughs> you know, he gets away with it. Um, uh, and Ida is kind of, you know, trying to uh, appeal to Rose's sort of better judgment to, um, uh, to kind of see see um, what Pinky really is. But uh, she just the more uh, the more debased Pinky becomes with her, the more she just seems to be drawn to him. Um, and the denouement of the movie is is interesting because, like I say, Pinky kind of gets away with everything. Um, but before he realizes he's going to get away with it, he's decided he's going to kill Rose, and we get into this kind of final sequence of the of the movie, um, with Pinky and Rose going for a walk, and he's trying to induce her to commit suicide, um, and she's torn between her love for Pinky and the Catholic prohibition against suicide, and hesitates. Um, what did you make of this final sequence, Bush? Well, it's it's interesting to compare with uh, Danvers' uh, attempts to coax the protagonist of Rebecca into committing suicide, isn't it? That it's, um, it's it's much more about uh, not Rose's own worthlessness, which it is in the case of the, the Rebecca protagonist, but in in terms of Rose's, uh, it's, it's playing on Rose's um, adoration of Pinky, like you know, you wouldn't want me to to die alone, would you? Sort of thing. Um, it's not a very convincing argument, <laughs> as far as I can tell. Um, well, he's gonna, we're going we're gonna to do a suicide pact, you first. <laughs> yeah, right. Almost, almost like an old joke, you know. Um, yeah, it's. I think one of the reasons that Rose is, is a bit more of a plausible character in this movie is that she does feel like a child, I think. She does feel mm. like a little girl. Um, and... And I think that that draws our sympathies, you know, in, in a certain way, because she is being kind of complete. She doesn't really have a chance against him. You know, she's completely dominated by him, and her Catholicism has set her has set her up for kind of, you know, you know, she does hesitate, but then she then she's in for it. She's like, well, we're not going to heaven. Let's go to hell together. And it's like kind of mm. a hell of a way to go. Um, and then you know. Um, Pinky's lieutenant Dallow and Ida realizing what he's going to do. They they turn up and, and a bunch of cops turn up, and uh, Pinky throws himself off the pier to his death. Um, is 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 Brighton Pier really that high that if you fell no, off it you'd die? No, <laughs> I didn't think so. You'd be fine. Um, <laughs> uh, 
but he really screams, and they 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 make a, a job of you know throwing one of those Monty Python dummies um, <laughs> down into the sea, where it lands and breaks very unconvincingly on the ways below. But no, you can easily jump from Brighton Pier, and in fact, people do jump from Brighton Pier uh, quite a lot. Um, either way, um, you kind of need that moment. <laughs> and then, like, yeah, this last scene. What what a last scene this is. It kind of, uh, oh God, it's, yeah. Would you like to conjure this last scene? Um, I, I it's it's so distressing. <laughs> I genuinely, find it distressing. So yeah, the the, the record that um, Pinky has made previously uh, is still in Rose's possession. However, at one point, um, it's it's thought that Rose is going to play it, and this will you know obviously blow up their relationship and this Rose's reason to be his alibi. So he tries to destroy the the, the disc by smashing it, but he only succeeds in, in scratching it, um, perhaps irreparably, perhaps not. Um, but it still remains in her possession. And after uh, he's died and uh, she has been taken into care seemingly by nuns, um, <laughs> She, uh, you know, the the nuns trying to convince her that, you know, Pinky was no good for her and this is for the best. And Rose is adamant that uh, uh, he he loved her and his love was true. And she plays the 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 gramophone, and uh, instead of playing the whole message of his absolute hatred for her, it says, "What you want me to say is, I love you," and then it skips on the word "I love you" over and over again, perhaps indefinitely. And she is confirmed uh, in her belief, her terrible belief that uh, Pinky was good and true and loved her. And, I, you know, there is, uh, at the same time as Rose is such a fragile creature and so innocent that you don't want her to be disabused, that's a terrible notion to believe that somebody as demonic as Pinky could, uh, could really have been her true love, like... It's it's just it's such an awful uh, kindness. <laughs> it's uh, what what is the there's a there's a phrase at the end of the the film like the appalling strangeness of the mercy of God. Yes, and it, it's just a, yeah, that, that's what it is. It is uh, it is an act of mercy that she's she's not found the truth out, but it is also appalling at the same time. Uh, uh, Yes, and Jesus the camera. Christ. Yeah, well, I mean, Jesus Christ. The camera uh, passes over her and, and goes to a crucifix with Jesus yeah. on it on the wall, and the end appears with bisected by a, a crucifix with Jesus on it. I mean, it, it's funny. I think there was. I think the book has a more positive ending for Rose, um, and I think Graham Greene wrote this new ending. In, he wanted to kind of do a sort of. I guess he, <laughs> I guess he wanted to protect her in a funny kind of way protect that faith she has um, rather than having her sort of move on and get on with her life. And I, it did strike me as a kind of pretty, one of the things that's, you know, crap about religion, really. One of the things that's worst about Christianity is this impossible standard it sets you. It asks you to aspire to, um, you know, Jesus you know, be like this guy, be like Jesus, what would Jesus do? But then Jesus is, you know, made of God dust. And so you can't ever be that good. All you can ever be is a failure. Uh, all you can ever be is damned. And, you know, mm. it's, that's the kind of, that vibe is what Pinky sort of plays on, that kind of nihilism, that sort of sense of like, well, you know. Well, he we believes were... in hell, but he uh, importantly says that he doesn't necessarily believe in heaven. 
That's right. Like he yeah. exists already in a in a state of damnation, and the only other kind of afterlife he can imagine is our further levels of damnation. <laughs> yeah. It's pretty bleak. I think it's interesting because I mean the two films. Uh, I, I you know Rebecca isn't uh, notably a particularly religious film, but I do think that like both films turn the, the physical locations in which they're set into places of psychological metaphysical torment in a way like Mandalay is is haunted you know uh, in, if not in a literal sense then in, certainly in every other way uh, like so much so that when Rebecca's will is overturned the mansion has no choice but to explode in flame <laughs> you know yeah, um, full, full blown and, fall of the house of ushers <laughs> right and then you know Dan, Danvers devotion is almost religious and her look of ecstasy as she's consumed by the flames like that, I think there's something distinctly and intentionally diabolical about that. And, and Brighton Rock, obviously, is much more in, uh, in connection with it. Sort of this discussion of Catholicism. Uh, this place is like already hell, at, at least to Pinky. Um, yes, and he, the, the, that the character literally quotes from um, uh, Mephistopheles in uh, mm. Doctor Faustus. He says, "Why well, this is hell? Nor am I out of it." You know. But all the, these characters are haunting themselves, you know. That's 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 the thing. I, I feel like Pinky's hell is is the, is the reality that he makes. There's that uh, this Emily Dickinson poem, which I'm going to wankily <laughs> recite to you. Uh, but one need not be a chamber to be haunted. One need not be a house. The brain has corridors surpassing material place. I I don't remember the rest, but it's basically. Like she goes on to say, oh yeah, it's far safer to walk, walk through a spooky abbey at midnight than it yeah. is to encounter oneself alone. And I feel like Pinky is just this, uh, it is in conversation with Catholicism, but all of the the kind of the, the hellishness of that reality is a result of Pinky and his outlook on the world. He says, when I was a kid, I'd swore I'd be a priest. Mm. Well, he <laughs> well, is. Yeah, he's he's just you. working for the other side. Yeah. <laughs> There's another bit I really liked, actually, which I forgot to mention, which is there's this scene where um, Rose wants to give Pinky someone, so she writes him this love letter of slavish devotion. And you can hear from outside the window a baby crying, a baby, like, screaming and crying. Mm. And it just it just goes over the scene until she leaves, and then he goes and slams the window shut. And I just love that. I love that touch of, like, are we just sort of doing a sort of original sin greatest hits of a kind of, you know... Yeah baby born out of wedlock yeah. <laughs> assumedly just screaming through the window and i love that it's just such a kind of you know simple but effective um thing you know and, and that ending with the, the that kind of i love you i love you the, the devotion to recitation the devotion to you know simplicity repeated ad infinitum, ad infinitum you know it's very uh i don't know like, like a lot of graham green stuff it kind of it's it, you know, it comes from a place of belief, but it also, well, it, it actually doesn't come from a place of belief. It comes from a place of agnosticism, which was where he eventually ended up. You know, oh, really? up, yeah, I think so. I think he described himself as a Catholic as agnostic, ultimately. Huh. But I think his, I think his books were always they engaged with the trouble of religion, in a kind of contrast to C.S. Lewis, which can you know sort of disregarded that. I think Green very much wanted to you know, wrestle with these things, uh, you know, and not be, and, and wrestle with the dogma of them um, yeah. rather than accepting them. Uh, you know, I think that's, that's he was in, at his most interesting when he was, you know, treading those 
treading those hallways. Mm. <laughs> um. So yeah, that's uh, that was Brighton Rock. I mean, they remade it, didn't they? With uh, uh, in the you know kind of ten years or so ago. Um, I did not see the remake. Yeah, they sort of set it in mod times, which is I don't know, mm. it's weird. Like, sort of going to mash up that movie with Quadrophenia is kind of. <laughs> uh, a, a strange idea, um, but mm. uh, I, I quite like to see how they do that opening sequence. Um, actually, I was just thinking that maybe I'll have a look at the uh, the beginning there. Um, but no, it does certainly feel like a, a movie that's of its time, and that interwar vibe gives it a good feel. And also, just the fact that these are like the way it's staged, like these are all these is the word they use spiv. Is that right? Mm. These kind of these gangsters, these kids, and and they're a kind of mixture of kids and old men. It kind of and the way that they move through these crowds and stuff like that, I like that, you know, because I've been to Brighton, you know, relatively recently before the pandemic, I think, you know, on a big crowd day out. And it's, it kind of, you know, it's the horror of these kind of horrible guys, you know, smoking and edging around. And, you know, it's, uh, you know, it's, um, it's just a really identifiable, you know, kind of locale to put these awful people in. Yeah. Um, I'd also, that pub, I really want to go to that pub. Oh, yeah. I yeah, I don't know pub. if that was meant to be alluring, but it really, uh, oh, if, oh, yeah. Well, I mean, it's it gross, mouth water. I, I still want to go there. I want to go to that pub. I haven't smoked in years, but I want to go to that pub and have a pass <laughs> and, and smoke a few fags. <laughs> um, but probably for the best, I can't. <laughs> I really enjoyed watching these two movies with you, Jamie. They were, they were really interesting to, to pair together. Delightful to go through them with you. That's all the time we have for this lock-in. Uh, you don't have to go home. But you can't stay here, as they say, because I'm about to overturn a candelabra and uh, set the entire place alight. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but you can send us questions uh, to uh, questions at Crate and Crowbar, or you can tweet us at Crate and Crowbar. You can listen to these recordings as videos on YouTube, where you can find other nonsense by us. The address for that is youtube.com slash Crate and Crowbar. Thanks, as always, to our backers on Patreon. These lock-in podcasts are actually free, entirely free, uh, but you can support our mainline gaming podcast, uh, at patreon.com slash create and crowbar or you can join our lovely discord community they are a great bunch of people the link for which is on our website create and crowbar.com that's it i've been marsh davis and i've been jamie Britton. thanks for listening yeah <laughs> everybody everybody, <laughs> <I said> everybody. <laughs> there you go <laughs> <laughs>